Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents a lecture by philosopher Noel Carroll of the City University of New York. This lecture, Art, Aesthetics, and Evolution, is part of the 2011 Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. So let me start. Uh, in the opening chapters of What is Art, Tolstoy comments at length, and often sarcastically, about the vast investment of resources and labor that went into the production of art in his day. He says, for the production of every ballet, circus, opera, operetta, exhibition, picture, concert, or printed book, the intense and unwilling labor of thousands of people is needed at what is often harmful and humiliating work. It were well if the artists made all they require themselves, but as it is, they need the help of workmen not only to produce art, but as it is for their own usually luxurious maintenance. And one way or another, they get it, either through payment of rich people or through subsidies given through the government. In Russia, for instance, in grants of millions of rubles to conservatories and academies. This money is collected from the people, some of whom have to sell their only cow to pay the tax and never get the pleasure the art gives. Uh, such a, a commitment in terms of blood and treasure, Tolstoy believes, calls for a justification. But Tolstoy isn't convinced that the most influential justification available in those days is sufficient. He says, it is said that all is done for the sake of art and that art is a very important thing. But is it true that art is so important that such sacrifices should be made for its sake? This question is especially urgent because art, for the sake of which the labor of millions, the lives of men, and above all, love between men is being sacrificed, this very art is becoming more and more vague and uncertain to human perception. Because he was struck by how much art costs society, Tolstoy made it a desideratum of any acceptable theory of art that it characterized art in such a way that its importance for human life is made explicit enough so as to justify the sacrifices made in its behalf. That is, Tolstoy demands of a definition of art that it not only say what art is, but that it do so in a way that explains why it is worth all the effort. Tolstoy's answers to his own questions are highly revisionist, rejecting much of the contemporary art of his culture, as well as a significant part of the canon. It is not only a criticism of the art that caters to the aristocracy of Tsarist Russia, it is a form of period-specific social criticism. It is patently criticism of the totality of the system that produces this art. Nevertheless, the issue that Tolstoy insists upon raising is of more than local historical interest. For throughout human history, art has required a substantial expenditure of resources. Putatively, every human society has possessed some of the practices or behaviors we would call art, including societies in which material necessities were dear and times were stressful. So the question arises, why are peoples including those in straitened conditions, willing to pay the cost that art exacts? What benefits explain the sacrifice cultures are prepared to expend upon the production of art? Tolstoy thought it was incumbent 
on the theorist of art to justify it. For contemporary theorists, it is not so much a question of justification as explanation. Why were medieval towns ready to devote, in some cases, nearly a century of toil and material wealth to the construction of their cathedrals? Why do people in Bali spend so much of their day creating items of aesthetic delectation, such as the arrangements of flowers, fruits, and other foods which are called offerings and are placed daily on the entrances of dwelling places? We need not be outraged social critics like Tolstoy to seek answers to questions like these. We need only acknowledge that for much of human life, resources have been scarce, and yet vast amounts of energy and supplies have been spent for the sake of art. In this talk, I'd like to speculate, and I really emphasize the word speculate here, about an explanation of why the arts have warranted the place they occupy in human history despite the fact that on the surface they appear to contribute about as much to society, to quote a no notable evolutionary psychologist, as cheesecake does. So one clue toward an explanation of the place of art in society is in the writing of the ancients, since they were expressly concerned with identifying the function of art, where for them, understanding the function of art provided a key for them to ascertaining its social value. Plato and Aristotle, along with the Rasa theorists in the Hindu tradition, all regard the arts as involved in the arousal of emotion. Although in book 10 of his Republic, Plato advises banishing the poets from the ideal state precisely because they traffic in the emotions, at other junctures in his writings, such as in books two and three of the Republic and his laws, Plato adopts a more measured view of the arts, applauding the stories that by way of emotionally affecting good role models promote socially desirable behavior, as well as recommending, as the Confucian tradition does, which musical modes are best emotionally suited to molding character. In most of his writing, Plato is for regulating art rather than ex exiling it entirely. Poems presenting bad role models should be censored. They should be kept from impressionable youth who once infected by inappropriate emotions like pity and fear of death will emulate them. Moreover, even when Plato threatens to ostracize the poet, he leaves open a loophole. If the poets or their friends can show the way in which the undeniable pleasure afforded by poetry benefits the commonwealth, the poets may be readmitted to the polis. However, since Plato has linked poetry and the arts in general so closely to the emotions, if the arts are to be beneficial to society, it will be in virtue of their connection to the emotions. Plato, as is um, Aristotle, as is usually understood, implicitly takes up Plato's challenge in his Poetics, in which he argues that the primary function of tragedy is to raise the emotions of pity and fear for the purpose of subjecting them to a process called catharsis. It's very interesting that Aristotle sings, singles out pity and fear because those are among the emotions that most troubled Plato. Plato worried that portraying gods, demigods, and heroes who evinced pity for themselves and others, as well as fear of death, would propose the worst sort of role models 
for the young guardians to be of his republic, since among other things, the guardians were soldiers and the emotions of pity and fear are not what you would wish to instill in the troops. Aristotle thus meets Plato head on, granting that although drama engenders pity and fear, it does something to these psychological states. It transforms them somehow. How exactly? This is where the notion of catharsis ends, but enters, but unfortunately, it's far from clear what Aristotle has in mind, since he doesn't define catharsis in his poetics, or for that matter, elsewhere. In the politics, he applies it to what is suffered by the celebrants of certain Eleusian rites, but it's not evident that he wants us to think of sedentary audiences in dramas as analogous to the dancing participants in aesthetic ceremonies. Catharsis can mean purify, purge, or perfect. My own view of what Aristotle had in mind is that drama purifies the emotions of pity and fear, among other emotions, by clarifying them. We read in the Nicomachean Ethics that the emotions need to be directed at the right objects for the right reasons at the right time and at a suitable level of intensity. Drama, it seems to me, helps viewers calibrate their emotions by providing them with opportunities to train their feelings with respect to situations designed to draw forth the appropriate emotional responses. And by honing the emotions of the citizenry, by cultivating them in the right direction, poetry against Plato performs a beneficial function for society. On this view, Tragedy is a means of educating the emotions. This is a controversial interpretation of how Aristotle means us to understand catharsis, but I think that it's eminently defensible since it fits so nicely with his overall defensive poetry as educative. But whether or not I've nailed Aristotle's meaning here isn't important. All I need for what I wish to argue is that arousing the emotions is a function of art, a very basic function of art, as acknowledged by Plato and Aristotle at the very dawn of the philosophy of art. Consequently, if we could say more about why arousing the emotions in the manner of the arts contributes to the well-being of society, then we may be on our way to explaining the mystery of why societies lavish such energy in support of the arts despite their apparent lack of return on society's investment. Uh, but before I discuss what I think are the most pertinent bonuses uh, that the arousal of the emotion by the arts deliver, let me emphasize what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the one and only function of the arts is to express or to arouse the emotions. I'm not, in other words, endorsing an expression theory. I grant immediately that there is much art that has nothing to do with provoking the emotions. There may be reflexive modernist art that aims only at inducing cognitive insight into the conditions of possibility of painting. Nevertheless, much art has been devoted to the task of arousing the emotions. And if we can identify why arousing the emotions in the way of the arts is socially valuable, we will be able to speculate on why much art, indeed perhaps most art, and thus the ongoing practices of art, has deserved the support of the societies in which it's emerged and flourished. But in advance of addressing the question of why the artistic arousal of emotions is socially valuable, it's useful to remind ourselves why the emotions themselves are valuable 
to society. Life in culture involves a constant process of judging and being judged. We are constantly appraising situations, including social situations. At the same time, we are subject to the judgments of others. Sometimes these judgments are deliberate. We and the others who judge us are frequently aware that we are involved in the process of assessing this or that. I think about the student's excuse about her problems at home before I decide that she needs to be cut some slack. However, a great many of the judgments we make, including moral judgments, are issued automatically. And this is where the emotions come in. For the emotions are biologically endowed mechanisms for making rapid appraisals, often without deliberation. When one senses something moving swiftly and low to the ground, one is gripped by fear. Or for a more social example, when someone jumps ahead of you online, you feel anger automatically. You don't have to think about it. Obviously, the capability for making such speedy appraisals was an advantage for our early forebears, when a snap judgment could mean the difference between evading a predator or responding to an enemy or extinction. The emotions were, all, were ways of solving the frame problem for creatures like us. That is, given a wealth of stimulation, humans need the means to assess what is important to them, what will advance or impede their vital interests. The emotions enable us to pick out the details of the arrays that confront us in terms of what we need to avoid or exploit. Fear, for example, zeroes in on danger and primes us to fight, flee, or freeze. Moreover, once an emotion takes command, it sends feedback to our perceptual system, disposing us to scope out the situation in terms of the elements before us which are relevant to advancing or threatening our vital interests, where in the first instance, fear alerts us to the presence of the approaching thugs. In the second instance, it, promises, it, it prompts us to search the environment for an avenue of escape. Many of the situations in human life that are pertinent to our vital interests are recurrent. Consequently, there are certain basic emotions, including fear, anger, jealousy, disgust, that appear to be nearly universal. And given the rootedness of the emotions in the body, where they engender physiological responses, these emotions seem to be biological. Nevertheless, although the emotions have a biological basis, that basis is a platform upon which different cultures calibrate various emotions in light of the particular circumstances that beset them. Even if fear is a basic emotion, feeling terror upon the sight of a summons from the IRS is unique to our culture. Society depends upon its members' ability to make converging judgments in order for social coordination to obtain. Since a substantial amount of the judgments we make are emotional appraisals, indeed it is likely that most of our judgments are such, the emotions are essential ingredients in the continual renewal and reproduction of social life. However, for the emotions to perform this role, there needs to be some agreement or uniformity across the population of a culture in the modes and criteria of the reigning emotions. And for that occur, to occur, the raw emotions have to be trained or educated. That is, for a society to persist, certain habits of just 
judgment must be passed from one generation to the next. And foremost among those patterns of judgments are the emotions. The citizenry of society must learn the emotional repertoire of their society. In order to function in the group, people need to possess the emotional knowledge of the group. They must learn through habituation the conditions under which such and such an emotion is appropriate, as well as what behaviors the emotion is apt to motivate in others. We need to possess this knowledge not only in order to judge our conspecifics, but to be able to predict how we will be judged and, in consequence, treated by them. We require knowledge of what to do and feel where feeling and doing are intimately related, and we need knowledge of how others are likely to feel towards us as a clue to what they will do. This is why the emotions are important for society. The arts, then, are important because they represent one of the primary ways in which the emotions are educated. That is, the kind of emotional knowledge requisite for social life in large measure is transmitted by examples portrayed in images, visual, verbal, including picture, sculpture, poetry, and song, and in myths and narratives, as well as the rhythms of music and the orders of our constructed environment, including its architecture, gardens, parks, sculptured landscapes, and so forth. In short, by arousing the emotions, the arts contribute crucially to the sort of education of the emotions upon which the existence of societies depend. One especially significant feature of the emotions, which is particularly pertinent to the educative role of the arts, is the human capacity to share affective states, a phenomenon sometimes called emotional contagion by psychologists. When we speak with our interlocutors, we often take on their facial dispositions. They frown and furrow their brows. We frown and furrow our brow. They smile and nod in assent. So do we. The configuration of our facial muscles then sends signals to our autonomic nervous system, and we feel something like what our interlocutors feel, thereby garnering for us a glimmer of their inner states. Undoubtedly, this capacity to penetrate the mental states of others begins in infancy, where so much learning, including emotional learning, occurs on our caregiver's knees, where we imitate everything from her glance to her giggles. The emotion system is not simply a, me a mechanism for mobilizing action in the individual. It is also a medium of communication, a way of letting our conspecifics know what is going on inside of us in terms of that which we are feeling. Our imitation of the facial displays of others is crucially important in this regard. It enables us to mind-read others by way of imitating their facial expressions. The look of fear etched upon the visage of another alerts us to the fact that she perceives there to be danger in the vicinity. By mirroring the look on her face, an effect of alarm goes off in us, not just in me, but everyone nearby in the surrounding environment. This is a f an effect, by the way, exploited especially by many artistic devices. For example, point of view editing uh, and the use of the close-up in motion pictures. Moreover, it's not merely the faces of others we tend to mimic when we interact with them. 
We also ape their stance, gesture, carriage, and even their movement. When our confederate leans towards us to confide something to us, we mirror her stance conspiratorially. When one person folds his arm across his chest, his companion very frequently does likewise. A, stupid, a group of students walks down the corridor, and they all fall into step. Call is a matter of mirror reflexes. It is pervasive throughout social life. Among other things, it is a way of spreading social feeling amongst the group. Indeed, even in cases where we're not able to move in concert with others, as when seated in the crowded bleachers observing a sporting event, we may feel a tug in the muscles of our arm that echoes those of the outfielder straining for a catch. Or watch spectators at a boxing event as their rhyming blocking movements mimic those of the fighter in the ring being pummeled. In fact, there is evidence that premotor pathways of the cortex are activated, pertinent to the performance of a certain action when we witness those actions being performed by others. Thus, as in the case of facial expression, it appears we have a capacity to detect what our conspecifics are feeling by undergoing similar or converging feelings in our own body as the result of imitating the bodily dispositions of others. The arts exploit these biological tendencies in various ways. In order to get at some of them, it's useful to make a very provisional dichotomy between what we can call the observational arts and the participatory arts. By observational arts, I have in mind arts such as the traditional theater arts and theater dance, where there's a marked distinction between the audience and the performer. Perhaps this kind of art developed as a result of a division of labor from earlier art forms in which the community as a whole performed, where everyone sang and danced, that is, where everyone participated, possibly in the process of enacting some religious ritual. Be that as it may, it seems fair to suppose that both the observational arts and the participatory ones engage the possibilities afforded by emotional contagion. With observational art, the audience as a whole models itself on the actors, dancers, and other performers, including the gesticulating musicians and conductors. At the same time, while watching the performance from their vantage points in the auditorium, the audience member in the presence of observational art also has the rest of the audience to model, engulfed as they are in emotions which we mirror. That is, while each in turn is being guided by mimesis, by the performers, towards the same effective state, that feeling is reinforced by the fact that our fellow viewers are feeling likewise in a way that additionally triggers our mirror reflexes in response to theirs. Thus, we may laugh and cry all the harder for being in a group. In the participating arts, on the other hand, we may only have each other to imitate. However, the fact that we can mirror each other's behavior more robustly and along more dimensions that we can as mere viewers when dancing or singing together may more than make up for the lack of cueing by specialized actors and dancers. That is, with respect to the participatory arts, we are all primarily mirror stimulating each other rather than modeling certain designated foci of attention like the actors on stage. 
Yet because we are immersed in the imitation so fully and along so many different aspects of imitation, the transmission of affect need be no less potent than in the case of the observational arts. Indeed, in some cases, the emotional contagiousness of the participatory arts may be more powerful than many instances of observational art. Music also has the capacity to promote fellow feeling amongst listeners, and not only through mirroring the gestures of the musicians and the conductors. This possibility rests on the fact that humans have an immensely strong tendency to hear music as moving, moving in time and in a certain direction, such as up and down and at a certain velocity when with a certain weight or gravity. In other words, music can impart the impression of moving towards a certain destination at a certain cadence. In fact, it is arguably the very fact that we can hear musical noise as moving in this way, that is, as being directed, that leads us to distinguish music from other kinds of noise. In virtue of its potential to suggest music, music, including pure orchestral music, can imitate human movement, and to some degree, the broad emotive qualities suggested by that movement. That is, music appears capable of imitating mu human movement, at least in a global way. As Stephen Davies puts it, Music is expressive in recalling the gait, attitude, air, carriage, posture, and comportment of the human body. Just as someone who is stooped over, dragging, faltering, subdued, and slow in his movement cuts a sad figure, so music that is slow with heavy or thick harmonic-based textures with underlying patterns of tension, with dark timbers, and a recurrently downward impetus sounds sad just as someone who skips and leaps lightly and quickly, makes expansive gestures and so on, has a happy bearing, so music with a similar vivacity and exuberance is happy sounding. Musical movement then, echoing human movement, in turn can insinuate human emotive or expressive qualities, or at least broadly. For example, the movement in the music may have connotations of euphoria or dysphoria. And this then can arouse cognate feelings in the bodies of listeners as a variation on the phenomena of emotional contagion. Undoubtedly, this is the reason that music is traditionally correlated with dance. Dance allows listeners to articulate physically the feeling of movement they detect in the music. If music imitates human movement, then by way of dancing, listeners imitate the impression of movement they intuit in that music. Moreover, when we are dancing with a partner or in a larger group, emotional contagion does not only move from the music to the dancers, but betwixt the dancers as well. Yet, <clears throat> even where we do not dance with the music, there's ev <clears throat> evidence that something is happening in our bodies that is like imitation. Namely, it appears that music stimulates certain of the motor pathways in our brain if we, as if we were preparing to move. So just as the actor provokes emotional contagion by inviting us, perhaps somewhat coercively, to imitate the bodily conditions associated with the effective state he intends to engender, so too does music encourage us 
to form, to encourage a form of emotional contagion among listeners by prompting us to translate the impression of movement we hear in the music into bodily movement impulses with corresponding effective uh, states. Of course, the source of emotional contagion in pure orchestral music is not another person, but the music, arranged in such a way that via the impression of movement, it suggests an emotive state. And admittedly, the emotive state projected by pure orchestral music may not be very precise. The music may connote generic anxiety rather than the fear of something particular, like a mountain lion or mad cow disease. In this way, pure orchestral music is mood-like rather than emotional-like. However, it is still contagious. Upbeat music will abet a joyous move, mood, even though the kind of joy at issue may be hard to pin down. Nevertheless, when the mood-like stimulus of the music is wedded to a text, a song, a dance, a ritual, a program, or a narrative, that joy can become very specific. With regard to the 1812 overture, for example, the mood of joy becomes identified as one of victory through the music's program, and the triumphalism of the musicum program infects the audience. Well, so far I've been briefly reviewing the arts in order to remind ourselves of the degree to which they actually traffic in emotional contagion. I've done this in order to make the case for the social importance of the arts. For in virtue of igniting emotional contagion, the arts at the very least perform the function of binding together the members of a group by facilitating the sharing of fellow feelings. In this way, the arts assist in unifying a social group by imbuing its members with converging feelings. Moreover, since these emotions can motivate actions, the relevant arts can enlist the emotions in the group that are requisite for the performance of certain actions. Practices like war dances and work songs coordinate group actions by investing the individuals in the group with the sort of emotive inclinations necessary to get those jobs done which presuppose group action as a condition for success. Of course, the sort of emotional contagion that the arts can promote is not only a means for stirring up fellow feelings useful for accomplishing local tasks, such as revving up the warriors to march across the river to do battle, the arts may also function, may also foster more overarching or long-lived forms of emotional contagion, such as patriotism by means of things like anthems, or instilling faith by means of hymns. In virtue of their, their capability to stoke emotional contagion, the arts can contribute to the maintenance of conformity, both at the level of local projects and enduring commitments, since the shared emotions they inspire in participants, viewers, listeners, or readers also bring in their trail converging motives to act. The story, song, music, dance, and other forms of enactment have an important role in the orchestration of social behavior among groups. Of course, throughout much history, the arts operated in tandem with religion, often in the service of rituals that themselves might be thought of as proto-theatrical events. Movement, including dancing, marching, and processions replete with music, song, 
narrative and gestural symbolism, sometimes led by priests and or sometimes incorporating the entire community, supplied celebrants with multiple channels or conduits of emotional contagion. Moreover, this contagion crossed the boundaries of kinship, thereby making possible the construction of social groups on the basis of something more extensive than bloodlines. That is, larger and larger social groups were enabled to cohere beyond the family and the clan by means of emotional contagion, embedded to a significant degree by the way in which the arts stimulate converging affect among creatives, participants, observers, or participant observers alike. Furthermore, if it is virtually axiomatic that larger social units replace smaller ones in competition for scarce resources, then artistic behavior as a lever of social cohesion, which is independent of membership in intimately related gene pools, functions as a way to bind groups emotively into an us in terms of an effective current of shared fellow feelings. Like contemporary sporting events that construct fan communities of sentiment around this or that team, the arts are able to contribute to binding together communities by means of emotional contagion. When spectators at a baseball game rise to their feet to applaud a brilliant maneuver, they experience a communal whoosh of pleasure, as Bert Trifus puts it, becoming united in a momentary society of feeling. Something similar happens when the audience delivers a standing ovation after an opera, a ballet, or a play. But the communities bonded by the arts are generally wider than those bonded by sports. For the arts do not merely bind communities effectively to particular artworks or performances. They contribute to forging larger social alliances. And they nurture the emotional intelligence upon which a thriving culture depends. The arts accomplish this in part by refining and shaping the feels they evoke, the feelings they evoke, typically by providing those feelings with the appropriate objects. When the arts were inseparable from religion, the songs, myths, symbols, narratives, and ritual enactments fixed what it was fitting to worship, to fear, to love, to hate, and so on. That is, the arts not only engendered converging feelings amongst the members of the group, they shaped those feelings by attaching them to the socially correct objects and behaviors, thereby calibrating those emotions so that the automatic judgments or appraisals that were rendered effectively would be more or less reliable relative to the culture in question. Songs of heroes and their adversaries carried social information about the virtues and vices that pertained to the relevant society and made the pertinent criteria of judgment available virtually, automatically, via the emotions. The arts, including narratives, songs, pictures, and the like, are among the leading devices for developing the, emotion, the emotional intelligence of a social group, beginning with the earliest stories that children are told on their caregivers' laps. Nor, not only do the arts succeed in, to a certain extent, standardizing the feeling of the group via emotional contagion, but they do so in a way that the fellow feelings that have been engendered are connected with the right objects. In short, the arts 
educate our capacity to issue emotive judgments or appraisals in ways required to assure social cohesion, conformity, and continuation. Moreover, the arts are particularly effective means for educating the emotion due to the ways in which they are typically suited to engage in human psychology. It is commonly observed that notions of virtue and vice are more memorably communicated by stories, myths, and songs than by sermons enunciating abstract principles. Better to recount a tale, perhaps aided by a stained glass window that illustrates it, about a moral exemplar demonstrating the virtue in a parable, rather than by defining the virtue by means of an abstract formula. Via narratives, visual, verbal, or sometimes both, the arts make the values of the culture accessible and readily retrievable by memory. Furthermore, if cognitive psychologists are correct, and categorization typically proceeds by prototypes rather than by means of abstract concepts, the narrative arts provide a more user-friendly means for acquiring the criteria requisite for making judgments or appraisals of both the deliberative and emotional varieties. Thus, viewing dramas, live ones, and motion pictures, reading novels, and listening to the self-narratives in popular songs are ways of training up, exercising, and sharpening the capacity for the emotional judgment that makes a society function. The arts of poetry, music, song, and dance all possess strong rhythmic elements, as do the visual arts and architecture, although at a different level of visceral intensity. Rhythm, of course, is a useful educational device. It is a way of making things salient. One will, for example, pay special attention to the words that fall into a regular rhyme scheme in a poem or song. But rhythm is also a very powerful mnemonic device. It is easier to call to mind information that's rhythmically organized. Even patients whose memories are otherwise utterly compromised by traumas such as cerebral strokes or diseases like Alzheimer's can often remember the songs they learned in childhood. Thus, by employing rhythm, the arts address us in ways that are particularly memorable, reinforcing the lessons they convey in a particularly deep and enduring manner. This is especially true when the arts in question are participatory, where we sing, clap, drum, and dance together. Such practices can make the social information so articulated virtually unforgettable, imprinting the ethos of the culture in the deepest levels of the being of its members. Moreover, oral performances of the canonical stories of various cultures, such as epics, are also rhythmically organized, not simply to aid the memory of the singer of the tale, but also to insert those prototypes profoundly into the memories of the listeners. Rhythm, in other words, is a powerful form of inception to hijack the title of the recent movie. And of course, emotion itself, irrespective of rhythm, enhances memorability. So the values secured by effectively charged narratives can also become almost unforgettable. Through devices then like narrative and rhythm, the arts viscerally disseminate the norms of a given culture indelibly in the hearts and minds of its people, facilitated by the kind of emotional contagion 
discussed earlier. The arts are not only primary means for educating their viewers, listeners, and readers with the value of their society, but they do so in ways that make those values exceptionally accessible and retrievable. They effectively bind audiences around a body of judgments or appraisals and the criteria that underwrite them. The arts unify and inculcate at the same time, providing the members of every society with the wherewithal they need to make the judgments they live by. Thus, my answer to Tolstoy's question, reformulated as a request for explanation, in a way sounds like, just like Tolstoy's own answer. The arts engender fellow feeling, which serves to bind people together. However, I don't understand this bonding as narrowly uh, as Tolstoy does in terms of Christianity. I think the arts have been and continue to be a means for uniting people, but this doesn't entail that, that they're a conduit for uniting all people, as Tolstoy appeals to hope. Often, perhaps most often, the arts serve to unite some people against other people. That is frequently, maybe even usually, the arts contribute to the formation of an us as opposed to a them. On my view, the explanation for the arts in the face of the social course they exact is that they've facilitated the evolution of societies of larger and larger scales by uniting and inculcating a target populace where all things being equal, societies that are larger are advantaged against smaller ones in competition for resources. Of course, I don't think that this is the only kind of advantage the arts afford. The arts may heighten the acuity of our perceptions, both in terms of discrimination and our powers of pattern detection. They may keep the mind active, exercising our mental capacities and staving off boredom. And they may play a role in sexual selection. I wouldn't want to deny that the arts promise a return on our investment in all these ways. But I do think that the primary advantage the arts provide involves the advantage they bestow upon groups in virtue of the ways they unite people into socio-cultural wholes. This hypothesis um, does advance, however, two controversial claims. The first is that artistic behavior is a self-adaptive rather than a byproduct of something else that was adaptive. And the second is that if art is an adaptation, then it's primarily a matter of group selection rather than sexual selection. I want to turn briefly uh, to those two issues in the uh, concluding sections of this talk. OK, so far I've been treating art as an adaptive behavior. Specifically, I've been suggesting very strongly that art bestows evolutionary advantages upon groups insofar as art contributes immensely to forming social cohesion among members of a group, both by engendering fellow or convergent feelings amongst them and by educating those feelings in the way of the group's presiding culture, by connecting those feelings in a particularly perspicuous manner to the objects of the relevant effective states. Groups that cultivate artistic behaviors will be more fit than groups that do not, inasmuch as groups that adopt artistic behaviors are likely to sustain greater numbers of members and greater social complexity than those that do not. And greater size, especially, is a crucial factor in group success. 
Larger groups are clearly advantaged over smaller groups when such groups are in competition for scarce resources and limited areas, both in terms of the larger group being able to exploit the vicinity more thoroughly and with respect to superior group force in terms of open warfare with the smaller community. In consequence, larger groups will have more offspring than smaller groups and will continue to redound, which will continue to redound to the advantage of the larger group. So, ex hypothesis, natural selection will pick out individuals who are disposed towards the artistic behaviors that are connected to emotional contagion and education. Of course, for artistic behavior to have had this advantage, it must have performed something like this function deep in our ancestral past. And I think there is some evidence for this, although this is very speculative. Artistic behavior is thought to have been manifested at least 30,000 years ago during the period often designated as the Upper Paleolithic Age, a period in which Homo sapiens or modern or Cro-Magnon man is believed to have secured dominance in Europe. Cro-Magnons possessed art, or perhaps more accurately, we should say they possessed various arts. They created the great cave paintings at Lascaux and other locations. They also sculpted. And there's reason to believe that they produced musical instruments. Hollowed bones with crafted holes that have been, have been discovered that appear to have enabled the playing of different pictures. As well, scientists have unearthed devices we now call bull roars, strings with bones or antlers attached to their ends, which when twirled around the head emit a powerful growling sound. Similarly, some of the pertinent Paleolithic caves, such as Resno Clastres in the French Pyrenees, contain stalactites that appear to have been repeatedly pounded, perhaps functioning like percussion instruments in the highly acoustically resonant caves of the Pro-Magnons. Moreover, and this is a premise, where there is music, there is virtually inevitably singing and dance. Thus, it's not unreasonable to hypothesize that our Cro-Magnon ancestors, it's not unreasonable to imagine them drumming, singing, and clapping in communal rituals staged in the entrance of caves like those of Lascaux and Gavillon, where the pictures on the cave walls themselves may have illustrated the same religious symbolism that was being rehearsed in the ongoing ceremony. Presumably, these gatherings involved storytelling, embodying cultural norms and projects which were possibly reinforced by the iconography on the walls, which images were also probably relevant to the performance of hunting rituals and perhaps deeper religious allegories. If our ancestral forebears had access to these artistic behaviors, they could then take advantage of the mobilization of emotional contagion for the construction of larger and more culturally complex groups than their neighbors, the Neanderthals, who appear to have lacked art to any appreciable degree. Moreover, we know from the fossil records that Homo sapiens were able to form larger communities than the Neanderthals, and that over time they came to dominate the pertinent domains of Europe to the extent that the Neanderthals became extinct. 
Undoubtedly, Homo sapiens had many advantages over the Neanderthals, including, it appears, language. And clearly, certain of these advantages, like language, facilitated the construction of more extensive and coordinated communities than their Neanderthal counterparts were able to field. Nevertheless, I think it's difficult to deny that artistic behavior, as it abets emotional contagion, was an important contributing factor to the cohesion of the larger Cro-Magnon groups. Therefore, it seems that the resources devoted to the arts way back when were not wasted by our ancestral forebears, who, as individuals benefited by belonging to groups that across dimensions like scale were in the main more fit than contrasting groups at large during the same time frame. However, some commentators persist in maintaining that artistic behaviors are not adaptive, but are rather what are called spandrels, that is, byproducts of genuine adaptations, which byproducts were not themselves subject to selective pressures. For example, that the color of human blood is red when exposed to oxygen is a spandrel. It is a consequence of the chemical constitution of our blood, and although the chemical constitution of our blood is adapted, that it turns red when oxidizes has no adaptive value of its own. It is just a selectively neutral byproduct of other biological features that are adapted. So even though the redness of blood is a universal feature of humans, it is not adaptive, but is only something that is connected to something else that is adaptive. Similarly, art is said to be like the color of blood, a byproduct of some other feature of the human organism that was naturally selected because of its advantageousness, but which byproduct uh, is not selected for itself. Now, uh, let me say some things about the Spandrel view. Um, sometimes it seems to me that defenders of that view presuppose that their position should just be accepted on the grounds that it's methodologically superior to the art as adaptation approach. Friends of the Spandrels suspect that in order to motivate the position that art is an adaptation, the defender will be forced to tell a story about the origin of art that will be so unconstrained by information about the ancestral environments in which art emerged that it will be as fanciful as the children's story, stories, which Kipling called just story, so stories, about things such as how the leopards got their spots. That is, in the absence of knowledge about conditions on the ground in the pertinent past, the theorists will be free to concoct whatever geology, <clears throat> Uh, whatever histories suit their purposes. To avoid such wool gathering, then, uh, the friends of the alternative spandrel account recommend thinking in terms of spandrels, which, on the face of it, will avoid the embarrassment of just so stories. But it's difficult to understand why the defender of the spandrel view think they can dodge the problems they see by besetting adaptionists. For the Spandrel hypothesis also calls for an account of why, in the layout of the ancestral environment, art was, really, was merely a Spandrel. That is, friends of the Spandrel labor under the same epistemic limitations the adaptationists do. Also, the proponents of the Spandrel view will need to tell us the adaptation from which the artistic behavior results as a byproduct. And they will have to do this without reverting to telling us 
what they themselves would call a just so story. Now maybe they can do this. My only point right now is that there should be no initial presumption in favor of the Spandrel account, despite the apparent bias on behalf of that view among many commentators. Both sides in the debate have comparable burdens of proof to face. The Spandrel persuasion does not have an epistemic edge over the adaptionists. Moreover, it will be argued that artistic, moreover, it may be argued that artistic behavior is obviously just a byproduct of the jump in the intelligence observable in Homo sapiens in the relevant time period. But this notion, or this candidate for the relevant adaptation, strikes me as insufferably vague. What aspect of intelligence, you want to know, is artistic behavior a byproduct of? A likely candidate might be emotional intelligence, of which mind reading would be a significant feature. One dimension of mind reading, in turn, is emotional contagion, which we have hypothesized is closely connected to artistic behavior. So are we to say that artistic behavior is a byproduct of emotional contagion, or even more broadly, of mind reading? This seems wrong to me. Art is not a byproduct of emotional contagion. It's a behavioral, it's a behavioral implementation of emotional contagion. It's an instance of mind reading. Artists use their emotional intelligence to anticipate what forms and themes will move their conspecifics in terms of their own susceptibility to emotional contagion, while audiences respond to such artifacts by undergoing emotional contagion. Art is not a byproduct of emotional contagion, but is a very important instance of the process. Furthermore, friends of the artist's spandrel conviction appear satisfied that if it can be shown that art originates as a spandrel, then the debate is over. But this strikes me as ill-considered. For even if artistic behavior originated as a spandrel, one need not deny that it subsequently went on to become adaptive. Perhaps we will never be able to establish whether the first thought was a spandrel or whether artistic behavior was naturally selected because of the function it performed ab initio. Nevertheless, even if it began as a spandrel, that's perfectly consistent with the argument that after its emergence, artistic behavior became adaptive, possibly, as I've conjectured, by discharging the function of facilitating the formation of communities of greater scale and therefore greater fitness than the communities that preceded them. That, how, that, that is, howsoever the first artistic behaviors appeared, it seems plausible that at some point it became adaptive by contributing to the advantage of Homo sapiens vis-a-vis -vis their Neanderthal competitors. Moreover, it should be added that in addressing a feature of our ancestral history that calls out for explanation, namely the survival of Cro-Magnon humans rather than Neanderthals, the artist's adaptation hypothesis goes at least part of the way to exonerating itself as nothing but a just-so story. I suspect one reason many are quick to deny that artistic behavior is adaptive is their view that art is simply pleasurable for its own sake and no other purpose. It is, to return to Steven Pinker's metaphor, cheesecake. But the notion that art is essentially pleasurable for its own sake is very recent, and it's a very controversial conception of art. Thus, arguably, 
it's highly anachronistic to project this conception of art backwards to the past in order to explain either the origin of art or its persistence over millennium. That is, when we set ourselves to explaining the origin of art and its longevity, we should not limit ourselves to thinking of artistic behavior as a medium of pleasure and nothing else. Rather, we should constantly be reminding ourselves that for most of its existence, art has been about stirring up and shaping the emotions in ways that binds and inculcates those under its sway as participants in a culture. The theory that art is an enterprise of engendering pleasure for its own sake arrived in the 18th century is, and is disputed even today in Western aesthetics, where it has had its greatest influence. Undoubtedly, if art was, as this 18th century dispensation would have it, its origin and persistence would be hard to explain. But if we abandon the view Tolstoy called art for art's sake and realize that artistic behavior has long been an engine of cultural consolidation, the proposition that it has been selected for due to the advantage it affords groups, then the road is clear to explaining the contribution of art to social life. Nor does the emphasis I've placed on artistic behavior in the, in the service of culture in any way deny the relationship of art to pleasure, since it is demonstrable that the arousal of the emotions, especially when shared by others, is pleasurable. However, on the view I'm supporting, that pleasure has not attached itself to artistic behavior for its own sake, but for the sake of the social advantages it sustains, much as natural selection has connected sexual pleasure to procreative behavior. Although the view that artistic behavior is sustained by nothing but the pursuit of pleasure for its own sake hardly suits most of the history of art, there maybe is the temptation to think that it does characterize current art, which in turn is why our contemporaries are tempted to project this view onto the past. But I'm not even convinced that the pleasure perspective does a good job dealing with a great deal of contemporary art. For I'm convinced that much contemporary art is still engaged in performing the cultural functions I've attributed to art immemorial. That is, much contemporary art, especially with regard to mass art forms like motion pictures, still trade in emotional contagion with respect to habituating audiences regarding culturally appropriate objects. In order to see this, it may be easier to consider works from the recent past rather than works of the immediate present, since we need some distance in time before we can see ourselves clearly. But with that in mind, think back to the heyday of the American Western in the 1950s. There we find, repeated in cowboy movie after cowboy movie, the figure of the reluctant warrior a man like the retired gunfighter Shane or Johnny Ringo from uh, the film called The Gunfighter, who refuses to resort to violence until there is no other viable option. In this, these Westerns cultivated a certain culturally valuable idea or valued idea of manliness. These films were undeniably entertaining, but in the process of being entertaining, they, like art through the ages, carried out indispensable cultural work, in this case engendering the emotion of, of, of admiration toward the virtue of manly restraint, 
and thereby uniting the audience behind a common norm. And a few, I'll just take a few more minutes to quickly uh, address the issue of group selection versus sexual selection. Um, some of you uh, may, uh, some of you may uh, not be satisfied with my explanation of why art, art persists, because I appeal to the advantages it affords to groups, uh, including groups like early Homo sapiens. Um, this conjecture about the fitness of art relies on a notion of group selection. But uh, many uh, theorists who favor an adaptionist perspective uh, are against group selection. Many, maybe the majority, including most recently Dennis Dutton, locate the, the survival value of art in explanations in terms of sexual selection. On this view, art arose and thrived, in other words, because of the advantages of the grant certain individuals, namely artists, whose artistic behavior makes them attractive to the opposite sex, which wins them reproductive success, resulting in lots of children with their genes, including a, a proclivity for artistic behavior, which in consequence generates more of the same. Uh, the story goes like this. Artists expend a great deal of energy producing artworks, or if they are performing art artists, in rehearsing the skills requisite for singing, dancing, drumming, and so forth. This then uh, is taken as a sign of fitness, uh, especially by females who are thus attracted to said art, uh, artists, and as a result, those artists are blessed with plentiful offspring. The abiding analogy here is to something like the phenomena of the peacock's tail. The peacock develops a large and wondrous tail which peahens find attractive. Why? Because if Mr. Peacock can invest all the resources it takes to grow such a splendidly large tail and yet survives, he must be a pretty solid kind of guy. That is, to, be, uh, to still be in the game despite the handicap of having to produce such a fantastic tail at an impressive cost in physical resources is a sign of health and well-being of the sort the peahen is invested in bequeathing to her offspring. So she goes for the guy with a big tail. Artists, rather than having beautiful tails, have their artworks and the performances to exhibit, and which, because like the peacock's tail, they're expensive to produce, are signs of fitness, which women especially will find attractive and have found attractive from the first Cro-Magnon yodeler through Frank Sinatra and Justin Bieber. How many little Mick Jaggers there are, we will never know. This is a very complex issue. So let me just raise a couple of initial objections before closing. Uh, I'm skeptical of the sexual selection account. I wouldn't dismiss it entirely. But I don't think it can give an answer to the question we began with, why art, given its vast costs, uh, can uh, survive. The, the first problem with the sexual selection account that I'd like to raise is the fact that although it's frequently analogized to the case of the peacock, the comparison isn't really very compelling. What is important about the peacock example is that the peacock's care, uh, tail is a handicap. The reason that it's, this is crucial to sexual selection approaches is signs of fitness can't be cheap. Otherwise, they'll be easy to counterfeit. 
The peahen needs a sign of male fitness that would be hard for lesser peacocks to fake. So producing these magnificent tails must come dear. However, it doesn't, however, it does not seem probable to me that the art of an early hunter-gatherer of forebears was uniformly of a costly sort, analogous to the peacock's tail. Much art of the early Homo sapiens presumably was, uh, was participatory communal art, art where everyone sang, danced, and clapped. It's far from clear to me that that variety involved any special costs, even to those who excelled above the rest. Likewise, expertise in storytelling does not seem to imply the sort of cost that manifests uh, fitness that the analogy with the peacock's plumber invites. Contemporary storytellers, like those of us who tell jokes, don't appear to put our fitness at risk. Indeed, one, one wonders whether the sexual selection model is suitable for characterizing the earliest forms of art making, since it seems to presuppose the existence of specialized artists in societies where the division of labor was probably not that highly developed. Perhaps cave painting fits the analogy better than participatory arts, but without knowing who did this and whether or not it actually involved hardship of sort, some sort, one needs to hesitate before extrapolating uh, the correlation to the peacock's tail. Furthermore, inasmuch as sexual selection accounts are tailored to individuals, it's not evident how they offer insight to the artistic investment of whole groups, not only in participatory group festivals, but communal structure, within the, uh, the, the forging of communal, communal structures like burial mounds and then temples. This doesn't settle the issue, but I think it raises at least a cause for debate. So to summarize briefly, I began with the question suggested by Tolstoy of why the arts emerge and have persisted despite the costs they've incurred throughout human history, including periods of material scarcity. My hypothesis is that the explanation lies in the ways the arts engage the emotions, notably in terms of how the arts possess the capability to unite people through phenomena like emotional contagion, while at the same time educating us effectively by directing those shared fellow feelings towards the culturally appropriate objects. This conjecture, moreover, fits with certain features of what we can presently say about our early hunter-gatherer uh, forebears, that they survived where their Neanderthal competitors perished can be explained in part by their ability to form larger groups, something that may in part be explained by their possession of art in contrast to the artless Neanderthals who went extinct. Thus, the origin of art, as well as its persistence, is apt to be connected to the advantages the arts contribute to the fitness of groups due to the ways in which the arts engage the emotions. Thank you. This lecture was presented as part of the distinguished Shulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities, established to honor Robert Shulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities.
The 2011 Schulman Lectures were organized in conjunction with the Yale College seminar Evolution of Beauty, a wide-ranging philosophical and scientific inquiry into the evolution and roles of beauty in the human and natural works. The course was co-taught by Jonathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of Philosophy, and Richard Prum, William Robertson Coe, Professor of Ornithology, Ecology, and Evolutionary Biology. Professor Carroll spoke on March 3, 2011 at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.